Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Morning, everybody. So glad that you're here today and chose to be here and worship and study together with us. Uh, I do see some faces that are less familiar to me this morning, and that thrills my heart. Welcome. So glad that you're here. My name is Phil Nauer. Um, I have the privilege of serving as a lead pastor here. Uh, my wife and I have been married. My wife, Kendra, um, she's a public school teacher. She's a special educator, works with special needs students in the Baltimore County Public School System, um, and she also serves as our elementary teacher director of uh, ministry to our elementary kids, and so she's back with the students this morning. I am married. I'm not making that up. Some of you never see her. <laughs> We're trying to work to a place where she can uh, she can uh, occasionally attend church service uh, and worship together with us, but she's back there serving our kids today, and uh, together she and I have been married for uh, a little over 25 years. I've been a pastor for 26 years. We have a 12-year-old son and a 7-year-old son who are off school tomorrow, so um, I have agreed to take them away for a little three guys overnight trip, and so my wife can have 24 hours of no men in the house, and just, I think she's just going to eat sushi and sleep, I think is what she's planning on doing. I will not be doing that. Legoland is in my future, so there will be none of that, um, but I'm looking forward to that. I think, pray for me, uh, that we have a good time, but we're glad that you're here today. Um, we're going to continue our series of studying the book of Genesis together, and today we come to chapter 5, and I'm terrified, and I've been terrified of chapter 5, uh, and I'll, t- I'll try and relate to you the terror that I have over chapter 5 of Genesis. It probably, re- it's because it reminds me of experiences I had in these two glorious decades of human history called the 80s and the 90s. Um, I know most of you have a hard time believing I was even uh, alive during that because, you know, I'm barely out of my 20s. And, but the 80s and the 90s were responsible for just glorious fashion, um, music, I mean, it gave us Michael Jackson, it gave us Bon Jovi, it gave us U2, it gave us Vanilla Ice, it gave us Millie Vanilli, it gave us just, it just keeps on giving. If you don't know, you are missing out on just quality, uh, quality musical history of those eras. It also, beginning, beginning in 1987, gave me something in my childhood that occupied hours of my time in the form of Where's Waldo? Some of you know. Some of you have no idea, and you are totally missing out. Where's Waldo was a series of illustrated books. They started in 1987. They were British. They're written by um, a man by the name, well, really illustrated by a man by the name of Martin Handiford. And these were books that had very detailed illustrations. And the mission on each illustration was to find the illustrated character Waldo. And I know you're thinking, how... How challenged were you that you needed hours on each page? Listen, I didn't need hours on every page. Some of these pages, I needed some time. Waldo was a thank you. You and I were on the struggle bus together. Waldo was this kind of unusual-looking guy. That In the the beginning of the book, they say this is what Waldo looks like. He had this red-and-white striped shirt and glasses and this, like, you know, this coned hat, and um, he was very distinctive looking. And the author says, in this book, there's lots of illustrations, and you, you, you start at the first illustration, find where Waldo is, and once you find him, you can move on to the next illustration. And I realize you think that this is, it sucks you in. 
Okay? These were not just normal illustrations. These were, these were highly detailed illustrations, and they were two pages wide. So when you turn the page, it was literally where the, where, you know, the, the pages met. Both of those pages made a single illustration, and they were extremely detailed, and Waldo was very small. And the author intentionally tried to hide him and filled it with red herrings that kind of looked like Waldo, and you thought you found him, but it really wasn't. And uh, in the first volume of these books, Waldo was relatively big. He was up to a square centimeter big. And the author would usually put no more than 225 other characters on the page so you could find him. By volume seven, he was down to two-tenths of a square centimeter among 800 other characters. So it was hard sometimes to find Waldo, but I got sucked into these books. I remember going to the book fair and buying the first one and bringing it home. And just, I was a little OCD, so I was like, listen, I'm going to start on the first illustration. And I'm going to look until I find him. And I'm not turning the page till I get to the next one. And I made good progress, but then there was a couple of these illustrations. I want to tell you, I looked and looked and looked and looked and could not find Waldo. And there was different thoughts that crept into my little pre-adolescent mind at times, like maybe this is a scam. Maybe the author did not include him here, and in order to sell more books and to keep us in this book longer, hid him from some pages, knowing that we'll pour over this thing for hours and hours and hours trying to find him. And at times I was ready to give up and flip to the other page, but again, I'm a little OCD, so I developed this grid system. I would have been a great investigator. I'm like, listen, I am going to carefully examine this. I'm going to go the same way I did word searches. If I can't find it right away, I'm going to go just, I'm going to make a little grid on the page, and I'm going to just go up and down and left and right. Some of you think I'm sick, and other of you think I'm a distant cousin. I don't know where we're at this morning. But I just trusted the author enough that I'm like, if the author says Waldo's in this picture, no matter how obscure it is, I'm going to keep looking until I find it. And I have good news for you. He's on every page. Now, here's the downside. Once you finish the book, not as exciting to go through it the second time. They're like, the second time, I'm like, well, I know where he is on this page. He's right there. I love to find my friends who were struggling and be like, you can't see that? Oh, it's so obvious. He's right there. Oh, you ruined it. Right? It's just one of those books that, like, you have to wait until you forget it all to go back through it again. Because once you see him in the picture, you're like, I can't unsee it. He was so obvious. How did I not see him there? I say all that to say I haven't had a similar experience until I had this assignment that I gave myself to teach through Genesis a chapter at a time. And, some, and, and, and you get to chapter 5, and you're like, where is a sermon in this hot mess? Have any of you read ahead to Genesis 5? Okay, a couple of you have. What's Genesis 5? What's in it? It's a genealogy. Please don't leave here right now. I said this the first sermon, and people who hadn't read that far already started packing up. I made it as far as 10 minutes, and one guy just had enough, just packed up, and he was out. I think he even threw me deuces on the way out. He was gone. And I'm like, man, maybe I should just skip over this chapter. It's a list of 10 generations of Adam. It's a bunch of names, a bunch of kids, a bunch of dead people. It's basically what it is. This one lived, lived this long, had this many kids and he died. This one lived next, had this many kids, then he died. And rinse and repeat. Well, how does that make you feel like looking for Waldo? Because three years ago, I came across a podcast from one of my very favorites while he was still alive, Dr. Timothy Keller, and it was actually the audio recordings 
of him teaching in divinity school a master's level class called Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And here is the thesis, and he's, he, he used a lot of words. I'm just condensing it down. Here is his thesis that just grabbed my heart as somebody who wanted to get more out of the Old Testament. Here's what he said. The gospel itself is like several fine threads that are woven through the whole Bible. If the Bible is like a blanket, the threads that hold it together are the message of the gospel. Okay? He says it's in every book of the Bible, the gospel message is. It's in every section of the Bible. If you become familiar with the characteristics of the threads, and he gave us seven, seven characteristics, seven different types of threads, you can recognize at least one of those threads in every passage or every section of the Bible. So what he said to us is, look carefully, make your own little grid in that section that you're struggling with. Find the thread and give it a tug and out will pop the sermon. So I had to wrestle with this. Did God really fill the Bible with the gospel message? Is every part of this Bible useful? If I look hard enough and search hard enough, can I find a sermon? Can we find a sermon? Can we find usefulness in every passage? And the truth is, some of these sections are easier to find than others. I mean, let's be honest. Genesis 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. That's pretty exciting, controversial, engaging stuff. Genesis 6 and 7 are this little event called the flood. Pretty exciting. What happened to the unicorns, the dinosaurs, death, drowning, claws, arcs, all kinds of stuff. Archaeology. Archeo- oh, that's cool. I never thought that ark and archaeology. Anyway, um, sorry. I, I'm trying to just listen to one voice at a time, and sometimes they all talk. Uh, I don't need help today. Um, and then in between these two relatively easy illustrations is this list of names. And I will tell you, and I hope I'm raising this for you, our mission today is to go into this chapter without skipping it and say, A or B, either this list of names has in it something that's useful, there's a Waldo in there, there's, there's the gospel message in this list of names, or it isn't. Either the author is telling us the truth that there's really value here, or it's just in there for no reason. Well, I go to 2 Timothy 3.16, and in 2 Timothy 3.16, my Bible tells me in Paul's letter to Timothy that all Scripture is God-inspired, and it's useful to us. All of it. There's a lot of stuff that was written in these ancient days that didn't make the final cut, but if it's in there, it's in there for a reason. So rather than flipping the page and saying there's no Waldo here, I'm like, okay, I need to stay with this, and we need to stay with this. We need to see if we can find somewhere in this long list of names a thread of something that points to the gospel message that we have all sinned, that we've fallen short of God's glory, that every man, woman, boy, and girl, because of our rebellion against God, because we're not perfect, because we've fallen short and have chosen our way, we all deserve death. We all deserve punishment. We all have judgment coming to us. But there is another option, and there is a gift that is awaiting for us that only Jesus can give, that only Jesus can provide. And he substituted himself into the game for us, and he took upon himself punishment that we deserve so that God could be just and hand out the punishment we did deserve. But if we so choose to put our faith in Jesus, surrender our life to him, live his way. There's forgiveness and there's a life after this life with God awaiting for all of us. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And if we can find that thread in here and tug on it a little bit, we should find a sermon. So let's find, not Waldo, but let's, 
Let's see if we can accomplish that this morning. Um, this chapter is 32 verses long. It covers a thousand years of human history. Sometimes the Bible moves slow. Sometimes it moves quick. Here it moves pretty quick. It starts at the birth of the third named child of Adam. He had other children. But we know two names already of children that Adam had from two weeks ago. What were the first two kids he and Eve had? Cain and Abel. All right. This chapter, you probably know a little bit about it if you know your Bible Sunday school trivia. Because there's at least two names in here that usually pop up in trivia. Here's one of the questions. Let's see how much you know from chapter 5 already. Who are the two people in the Bible who never died? There's one of them in here. Enoch is one. Who's the other one? Who didn't die? Elijah, right? Took, went to heaven on a fiery chariot, that whole situation. Well, Enoch's story is in here. Second Bible trivia question. Who is the oldest person who ever lived according to the Bible? Methuselah. Well, guess who Methuselah's dad was? Not Seth. That was his great, 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 great granddad. Enoch. So Enoch and Methuselah are linked. Enoch, the guy who went to heaven without dying, and his son, who did die. Anybody know how old he was? 969. Now that number is going to be important in this story. It does at least make me, if I want to start tugging at threads, here's a Here's one thread you tug at. If the Bible shows you a pattern, find the one thing that doesn't fit the pattern. It's drawing your attention to something. And Moses loved to write in patterns Think, and use repeated phrases. Think about chapter 1. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. And then he gets it, and then God saw. You have another pattern. And evening came, and morning came the second day. And evening came, and morning came the third day. Well, as I read a section of this, I want you to find the pattern, and then I want you to say, is there anything in this long pattern that doesn't fit? That's an indication the Bible wants us to zoom in on it and see if there's a thread there. Now, I, I will just let you know, I'm not going to read all 32 verses. I know some of you are really disappointed by that. You came here to hear this bald guy's voice, this bald guy and his voice read to you the whole chapter of a genealogy. I'm not, but enough to give you the context, okay? Enough for you to find the pattern. All right, let's start in chapter 5. We'll start at verse 1, and I will read verses 1 through, 1 through 8, and then we'll pick it up again at 21. I'll just skim the pattern between verses 7 and 20. Here we go. This is the written account of the descendants of Adam. I should let you know that I didn't te- I'm not teaching the end of chapter 4. It's also a genealogy. It's a genealogy of Adam's son, Cain. Here's the summary. It did not go well. They fall way off the course really fast. We have no indication that Cain ever repented, but God did say, even though you won't repent, I'll still put a mark on you. Even though you don't want relationship with me, I will not close my ears to you because I'm holding out hope that maybe at some point your unrepentant heart will change. But we follow his descendants, just bad news. You can read through it, bad news. But there was another son that came. There was Abel. Well, why don't we have his genealogy? Well, he died um, at the hands of his brother. We have Cain's genealogy. And then there was a third son, Seth. Now, he had other kids, but these are the three we have their names for. So here we go. This written account of the descendants of Adam. When God created human beings, he made them to be like himself, Imago Dei. We spent a lot of time studying and teaching that. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and called them human. When Adam was 130 years old, He became the father of a son who was just like him. So here we have a slight change in the likeness of kids. Adam was created in whose image? 
He chose to tell God's image. He was created perfect like God. Adam chose sin and marred and distorted the image. So his son wasn't created in God's perfect image like his dad was. He was created in God's marred image like his dad. So that's where it all changed for us. The image is still there as we taught about. It's just been marred and distorted, but the evidence of God's image is still in us, but it's been corrupted, tainted, distorted because of sin. And the good news is that God can polish that back off and restore it again. And that's the journey that us believers are on, right? Can't tell if I lost you or not. We'll keep going. Uh, after the, uh, and his, uh, named his son Seth. After the birth of Seth, Adam lived another 800 years. It's a long time. Long time. He had other sons and daughters. So Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. Verse 6, when Seth was 105 years old, he became the father of Enosh. After the birth of Enosh, Seth lived another 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. He lived 912 years, and then he died. I'll just summarize. Enosh lived a while, had some kids, verse 11, then he died. Kenan lived a little while, had some kids, lived some more years, had other kids, and then he died. Mahalalel lived some years, had some kids, had some more kids, lived a lot while longer, and then he died. Verse 18, Jared was 160, the jeweler, was 162 years old, just checking. He became the father of Enoch, lived a while, had some other kids, and then he died. You get the pattern. There's a dude, lived a while, after he lived a while, had some kids. We name one of them. He lived a little while after that kid, then he died. There's a pattern, there's a pattern, there's a pattern. Now verse 21. When Enoch was 65 years old, he became the father of Methuselah. After the birth of Methuselah, Enoch lived in close fellowship with God. Well, there we have a new detail. For another 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Now we have more detail. He lived 365 years walking in close fellowship with God. Then one day he died. No. He disappeared because God took him. Those are two really, really, really good questions. Where did he go and why? Well, uh, we have an answer right there. Where did he go? With God. Why? Because God took him. Why? Because he walked in close fellowship with God and no one else was walking close with God or else they probably would have had the same thing waiting for them. Well, let's keep reading then. Uh, maybe the pattern continues. When Methuselah, Enoch's son, lived 100, was 187 years old, he became the father of Lamech. After the birth of Lamech, Methuselah lived another 782 years. He had other sons and daughters. Methuselah lived, there it is, 969 years, and then he died. More than a trivia question, I wonder if there's any spiritual reason why Methuselah was allowed to hold the record for the longest amount of years lived on the earth? I think the answer is absolutely yes, and we'll look at it in a moment. When Lamech was, uh, was 182 years old, he became the father of a son. He named his son. Now we get familiar. You ready for this one? Noah. Have you heard of Noah? Are you with? Okay. You're like all relieved. You're like, we've been in this murk of weird names. We had two trivia names. Now Noah. All right. We're getting to the flood. Here we go. We know that story, right? Um, Lamech named his son Noah. The word literally means rest. And uh, he said, for he, may he bring us relief from our work and the painful labor of farming this ground that the Lord has cursed. 
After the birth of Noah, Lamech lived another 595 years, had other sons and daughters. Lamech lived 777 years, and then he died after Noah was 500 years old. Just, just a young pup, midlife crisis, I guess. He started having kids. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Where in the world is Waldo in this whole mess? Uh, let's see if we can find it together. Because here's what I know. There's some times when you're going to really be inspired to dig deep into reading the Bible on your own time. I hope for all of us that's part of our daily rhythm. But a lot of times we give up when we get to the passage that's hard to understand. It's frustrating. And I hope maybe this morning together will let you feel just a little bit better equipped to not write off even some of these passages that seem that Waldo's hiding deep in there. I I hope that maybe together this can give you confidence that there's a thread Maybe not even in the five verses you read, but if you go back 10 or you go ahead 10, you'll find it. Read till you get a thread, tug on it, and it'll make everything around it make sense. Okay? Here's the big idea. I actually think that we'll see the entire message of the gospel in most powerful, and maybe one of the most powerful and raw forms you'll ever see it in the Old Testament is all hidden in plain sight in chapter five. And I hope that today I can help you see it and that you'll never unsee it. And that it'll change the way that you walk with the Lord from this moment forward. I think Enoch's life is a sign, among other things. Now, some of you in your camera roll have pictures of you posing with a sign probably somewhere. Well, let's be honest. Usually the sign is not the destination. The sign is just something that points towards a destination. And I think Enoch's life, in addition to being very valuable, also is an arrow that points us to the whole gospel message. It points to the three nutshells of the gospel message, and I think we can see it. He provides us, here's the big idea, Enoch's life provides us a sign that points to three things, that there are consequences to our sin. Second thing, that there is a future judgment that is coming from God because of our sin. And third, that there is absolutely hope. There's hope for us in God's grace. And I think we'll see that through this. You see in verse 5, 8, 27, 31, this whole chapter has a pattern. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. Everybody but one person in this chapter that was born, what happened to him? They died. For the wages of sin, Paul tells us in Romans 6, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We'll get to that in a moment. Well, where do you see that there's a reality of future judgment? It shows up first in the choice Enoch made to name his kid. Now, I realize today not all of us choose names for children based on what the name means and out of our hope that that name will define that child's character in a future course. Sometimes we just pick out a name because no one else has that name. Or a name that we like, we look it up, and if it's made the top 10 most common names, we say, i got to roll it. That's too common. Or other times we say, I like the name, and other people have it, but they don't use three R's like I'm going to. And so I'll add three R's just so that my child's name will be constantly misspelled, but it'll make them stand out. We don't always, you can't assume 
that our name is supposed to, yes, it identifies us, but it doesn't always define us. My parents, my name is Philip Andrew Nower. They picked Philip and Andrew because they were respectively the first uh, deacon of the church and the first apostle of the church. That was, that was, or the first disciple that was called and the first deacon of the church, which I thought was cool. When I looked up what Philip actually means in Greek, it means lover of horses, and I'm not a big horse guy. So in that way, I fell way off the mark. But it's no big deal. However, back in the day, you need to understand, it's not like he went through some ancient baby name book and said, oh, Methuselah, that has a nice ring to it. That'll fit well on a birthday cake. That'll be awesome. No, he picked this name because of what the name meant. He wanted, Enoch wanted his son's name to be a message that defined his son and everybody. Here's what his name means. It's two Hebrew words mushed together. It means he shall die and it shall come. Mush them together, it literally means, Methuselah means, when he dies, it shall come. Yeah. Now the question is, what is it? And then, if it is an it, how did he find out what it was? Who told him, and how did him knowing what it was shape the rest of his life from the moment he heard it? All of that's in this chapter. We see he had a life-changing God moment. There is a moment where God spoke to Enoch and told him something about the future. And Enoch was so convinced that what God told him about the future was true and right and accurate that it changed everything about the way that he lived from the way he walked with the Lord to the way he related to people to even what he named his son and what he wrote about. changed his whole career path. We see that all in this chapter. But we also see that there's hope in God's grace. This is the first time in all recorded history that God revealed to the people on the earth that there was a life after this one. That this life is not the only life we ever have and that if we choose to walk with the Lord, we will be taken by him at some point to spend eternity with him. Up to this point, it was just Adam died, Cain died, Abel died. They all died, and they didn't know what happened next. And now God opens up the window, not later in Revelation, but all the way back in the opening pages of the Bible to say, there is a life after this one. And you have access to it. So um, let's tug on it a little bit more. I think the way that I want to approach this this morning is just giving you an encouragement to know God like Enoch did. That was the main differentiator between him and everybody else on this list. Yes, he didn't die, but the reason why is because we get a little more detail about his walk with the Lord that sets him apart from everybody else. Do you know enough about Bible history to know that by the time Noah came around, the world was pretty bad? How many people got on the ark? Eight. Well, we're close. We'll round up. Eight people get on the ark. How many people had an opportunity to get on the ark? Everybody else. They all had an opportunity by putting their faith in God to understand what they had to do is accept judgment was coming and they were vulnerable to it and take the way out, the ark. Eight people. Eight people had enough faith to believe. You can read the Bible. I'm getting it in next week's sermon, but we have no indication that even rain happened up to this point. Really? There's going to come rain. What is rain? Enough to flood the earth? What differentiated him? Yes, he didn't die. But none of these other men were described as people who walked closely with the Lord. None of them. 
None of them. And the world was very wicked. But Enoch knew God differently. He knew him. He walked with him. He walked with him differently after the birth of his son. His son was born, named Methuselah, and then he walked with the Lord another certain amount of years. The indication seeming to be that maybe he didn't walk too close with the Lord, but something about having a kid and something about this moment he had with God changed his spiritual walk. So I want to encourage you to know God like Enoch did. I want you to walk closely with him. Who was the first person in the Bible who walked closely with God? Adam. And that means friendship, deep, intimate friendship. Because if you walk closely with God, it's going to develop three things in you, at least. It'll develop more, but not less than these three. First of all, here's something we see in Enoch's life that'll develop in you if you walk close with God. First, an awareness that we will all die. But, because if you just stop there, it's a miserable message. And there's so many people in this world who the more that this sinks in that they will die, you get all kinds of crises, don't you? You hit that place in life where you're like, I'm about to hit the mid-century point, and I haven't crossed off most of my bucket list. I better, I better get all the surgeries. I better buy all the sports cars. I better start spending money because I have more days behind me than in front of me, and I haven't lived it up yet. And the bucket list is the one you don't want to finish. You finish the bucket list, then you kick it. That's it. You kick the bucket. You're done. You want that list to be long. And what settles into Enoch's heart is, yes, everybody's going to die. But death is not final. Death is not final. Verse 23, Enoch lived 365 years walking in close fellowship with God. Then one day he disappeared because God took him. One day he disappears. So what you see in this story is that one died and another died and another died. Another. You know what it tells us? We're all going to die. Yay. Write that in your notes. What did you learn today? We're all going to die. Book of Hebrews. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then what's next? Judgment. Yay. Now, you couple that together with 1 Corinthians 15. We won't all die, but we will all be changed. What do we do when we put it together? We're going to leave this earth. This life is going to end one way or another. For most of us, probably, it will end in death. For some of us, it will end in being raptured up out of the earth in an event the New Testament talks about as the rapture of the saints. But one way or another, this life, this body is decaying. It's going to die. It's been infected because of what? Sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a point unto us once to die. God said to Adam, you will surely die. What does this mean? Old people die. Young people die. I mean this gently. Sometimes children die. Teenagers die. Babies die. The people we think are good, they die. The people we think are bad, they die. Sick people die. Healthy people die. We all are going to die. And I want you to know that when you have an awareness of that, it does produce a certain unrest inside of us that's unlike anything else. Some of you know you've wrestled with the reality of your own mortality. And how we respond to an awareness that at some point we're going to die drives our whole life. We are absolutely hope-dependent creatures. What we think about our tomorrow absolutely shapes how we feel today. Absolutely. I am in 
friendship with some people in my life who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. One in particular, who I won't name this morning, he's about 20, a little bit over 20 years older than I am. Close friend, good friend, talk to him, visit with him every week. Does not know Jesus, doesn't attend a church, has never known Jesus. But we've gotten to the place in our relationship where he recognizes that I do, and I've told him, We've gotten into that story. In fact, right now we're at a place where he's warming a little bit to those spiritual conversations. His wife recently had a car accident and she had a brain injury in that car accident. She's very slowly recovering but lost her motor skills, wasn't able to go to work, can't drive, and is very slowly recovering. And he ultimately said to me, will you please send your thoughts and prayers for my wife? And I was like, absolutely. Every time I think I'll pray, my thoughts do some, but my prayers do more. And I've shared with him even about my hope, my confidence that after this life ends, I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. And I've gotten to share my basis for that. Well, why do you think that? Because I believe that I'm going to get into heaven based on Jesus' resume, not mine. I'm confident in that. I'm confident that I will be able to, that I'll stand before God because of what he's done for me and that I put my faith in him and that I live through him. That because of what he's done, I have access. My friend doesn't buy into that. My friend knows he's going to die. My friend even has gotten as far as saying, I'm pretty sure there's an afterlife. Where do you think you're going to go? I asked him. He says to me, I'm pretty sure God's going to let me in. Why are you so sure? Here's what he says. Well, because I try and live by certain rules. Rules that he created himself. And one of his sayings is, listen, I believe that if I'm always doing the right thing, that I'll never be doing the wrong thing. Well, that sounds great. And what he says is, I made up a rule. And I try to follow the rule as best I can. And he even says right after that, now, have I always followed that? No. But I do my best. And so I'm pretty sure that God's going to let me in. Now, I want you to hear this logic. He knows he's going to die. He's pretty sure there's an afterlife. But rather than accepting what God tells us about the standards that he will judge us by, he substituted in his own that he created for himself, and even his own standards he admits he doesn't hold up to, but the God he imagines is just going to let him on in. The God that he believes in is not actually the God who is how he says he is. He believes in a God he created out of his own thoughts. He believes in a God as he wants God to be, not as God actually is. A God that you serve, that's created out of your own imagination, will never save you, will never change you. Only a God who is who he says he is can do that. And I want you to know that in the world that we live, every day and every moment, someone else is waking up to the reality that their life is not infinite and that they will at some point die. And they are wrestling with that, and they are, they are looking for truth to that. And rather than accepting the truth of the Bible, many people substitute in their own opinions. And it was such in the day of Enoch. He lived with an awareness that his life and everybody else's lives would end. But, but, he also understood that this life is not the end. We don't just go, you don't just fade to black and it's over. We go into soul sleep or soul slumber. He believed in a bigger life after this. Now, 
I know a lot of you are thinking like I do. All right, well, if Enoch was going around and he was trying to convince people that, that, that there was an afterlife, he had a disadvantage that we don't have. We have an advantage he didn't have. I can tell people about the hope that there is in Jesus. Enoch was thousands of years before Jesus. He couldn't just say, listen, you know, God came down and talked to me last night that there's judgment coming, but there's salvation in the name of Jesus, who's not even born yet. And if you're skeptical, you might say, well, what in the world proof do I have that there's some life after this one? Well, I think the proof was in just watching Enoch's life and seeing what happened to him. How did Enoch's life on earth end? How did it end? He disappeared, as my seven-year-old says. It's too cute. I don't correct it yet. Please don't correct it. He disappeared, and he was no more. And what did the people know about his disappearance? They only knew one fact. God took him. Now watch. The other thing they knew about him is that he walked close with God when nobody else did. So here's the conclusion that they can draw. That guy was whack, but he did walk close with God, and he didn't die like the rest of us do. If you walk close with God like Enoch, you don't have to fear death. You'll go eternally to be in some afterlife with God. I think that's a pretty strong message in the Old Testament, don't you? We will all die, but death is not final. We will stand at one of two judgments. Those of us who die without a relationship with Jesus Christ will stand at a great white throne judgment where we will be sentenced to eternity without Jesus. That's the one the Bible talks about. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we sing it, but it's really talking about people who realize Jesus is who he is too late. But I also have news for you. The Bible describes a different event for those of us whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's not going to be like one of these plays that you see where you're going to stand there white-knuckling it, hoping they don't get to the K's, you know, like, 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 like my last name is K, but it sounds like, a, sounds like an N, so it's like if they skip me, I'm like, please go back and look through the, the K's one more time. We're into the L's, and I didn't hear my name. You're not going to be white-knuckling it, wondering whether or not you're getting in or not. The judgment for believers is different. It's a, it's a judgment of blessing. It's a judgment of reward. It's a judgment of welcome. Enoch was, for all we know, the first who lived with awareness of this. We're all going to die, but death is not final. Second thing that it will develop in you, I've got to move on here real quick. Um, a couple pages ahead. Here's another thing. It'll develop in you an understanding of future judgment that won't terrify you to death, but it'll produce in you a closer walk with God and an urgency to reach others. I don't know exactly when it happened, but some point before he picked out a name for his son, Enoch got a revelation from God. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of different ways God talked to people. Do you remember what some of them were? Dreams, right? Visions, those usually go together, right? Dreams and visions. What was maybe the most ordinary primary way that God spoke to people in the Old Testament? Yeah. And God said, audibly, I wish God spoke to me like that. No, you don't, because that's how he had to speak to people before his spirit could live inside of you. It's much more intimate for God to speak to me through his spirit who lives in me than him having to speak to me from outside of me. That's what the, anyway, there's a whole lot of theology in that. I won't go down that trail. I try not to do that anymore. Um, 
He probably spoke to him out loud. The Bible doesn't tell us that. It could have been another way. But he spoke to him unmistakably. Well, how, do you, how are you so sure that you know what God told him about? Well, a couple different ways. It's kind of ironclad. Number one, he wrote down a lot of this stuff, and you can read a lot of what Enoch wrote down today. It's not included in the canon of Scripture. It's not included in the inspired Scripture. But there's at least one passage from Enoch's letter that was quoted by Paul in the New Testament and becomes part of our inspired canon. It's in Jude, verse 14. And here's what Paul writes as an example of what Enoch said and wrote during his, during his lifetime of ministry. Uh, verse 14, Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these kinds of people. Enoch said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. This is what Enoch was preaching in these days before Noah. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for the insults that ungodly sinners have, been spoke, have spoken against him. Wow. This is the only man at this time preaching this message from what we can tell. Probably not terribly effective. All it produced was a believer, Noah, and his family. But this is what he was preaching. He was preaching about a judgment that was coming in the near future. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you read the next couple chapters of Genesis? Was there, in fact, a judgment coming from God in the near future in front of Enoch? Yes. In what form? Flood. So convinced was he that God must have given Enoch even some information about not only that it was coming, but when it might come. Well, not the day and the hour, but he gave them something to watch for. What do we think it was? What did he name his son? Methuselah, and what did Methuselah mean? When he dies, it will come. Now, what is the it? I'm going to show you in a second to the year he was right. So one of the things Enoch was doing was he understood there's a judgment coming. Now, let me ask you something. If you're Enoch and God talks to you out loud and says, there's judgment coming, it's coming for me because of the following reasons because of all the ungodliness and all the people who are slandering my name, it is coming. In fact, it's going to come. When your son dies, the judgment's coming. I'm giving you time and I'm giving you grace and I'm giving you a message to encourage people to turn. What would you do with that information if you're Enoch? Tell everybody. Why would you tell everybody? Yeah. The righteous response to knowing that an end is coming and anybody who is not in Christ is vulnerable to judgment, the right response is you tell everybody that you can. You get your own self right, and you walk close with God. Listen, if I know judgment's coming, I'm not wandering from God. I'm walking close with God, because I know there's judgment coming. And I don't want to be far from him. I want to be as close to him as I can. The second thing that I'm doing is, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm making babies cry. You're talking about judgment today. My bad. Oh, baby May, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. I'll, I'll be more peaceful. I'll talk about judgment like this. Sorry. Sorry, baby May. Um, but can I flip this for you just a minute? Can we go back to Judge uh, to Jude 14? Here's what his excerpt of the sermon was. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. Does that sound like a flood? Does that sound like any other judgment the Bible tells us about? Revelation. 
And you know what's wild? Enoch saw both judgments coming. He saw one that would end when his son died. And he saw the second judgment coming as well. Wow. He sees this whole thing. And as a result of him being so arrested by this, two results come after this. Well, several. He walks close to the Lord, it says. It says, and then he walked close to the Lord. He had an experience with God where he was convinced that there was a judgment coming and he was vulnerable to it. He deserved it and so did everybody else. The wage of sin is what? But the gift of God is eternal life. So here's, here's our choice. You get the wages or the gift. That's what you get. Now watch what a wage is. We like our wages. And have you ever gone down to HR when the check was too little? I was supposed to get paid overtime for this. I was supposed to, you didn't categorize that right. My check is $40 short, $140 short. You didn't include this sale in it. This is not what we agreed to. My bonus, my increase was supposed to start on this day. You took out too much for that. We're always down there when the check is too little. Now we're not down there when it's too big. That's the blessing of God. (laughs) Why? Because wages are what we rightly deserve. It's just. It's an exchange. I work this many hours on these terms, and you agree to give me what I deserve. That's the wage. The wage. What does our life deserve? And this is another gospel thing. The wages of sin is death. We see it over and over in five. Because of sin, they died. Sin, they died. That was not God's plan, but that's our wage. We deserve it. And when that settles in your heart, when you realize, I am broken, I am not perfect, I've fallen short, you know, everybody's, you know everybody makes mistakes, we, we're broken and we know it, and we're all trying to do something to come to terms with that. But when that really sinks in, what comes next is, and what do I really deserve for falling short? And some of us try and create this alternate universe where that's swept under the rug. Just try your best. In other words, go to God with your resume. That'll be good enough. No, there is none righteous. No, not one, says the Bible. Only one resume is good enough is Jesus. Well, great. Well, I don't measure up to him. We've all fallen short. Well, here's the offer. You can have your wage. You can show up to God like my buddy. Listen, God, I made up my own rules, my own pay scale, and I kind of got there, and I, you know, I want you to be more gracious than what you really are, but let me in. I want my wage. Or you can say, God, I don't want what I deserve. I want a gift. I'll receive the gift. You see, the good news, the hope that we have is that the hope is offered as a gift, not a wage. You can't earn it. You don't earn it. It's given freely because of the generosity of the giver. That's what you get, one or the other. You either get the wage or you get the gift. Some of you are saved, still trying to earn your salvation. Stop it. You don't want your wage. You want the gift. You want the gift. He's aware of this. The first person in the Bible, for all our indication, that his eyes have opened up, and so he becomes a prophet. Hebrews 11, he's in the Hall of Faith Hall of Fame. He was a prophet. He preached to everybody. There's judgment coming, and we deserve it because of our ungodliness. Turn from that. You have an option to turn from it. How effective was he? How many people listened? Basically, no one. But I asked you a minute ago, What would you do if you knew judgment was coming, that we all deserve it, and outside of Christ we're vulnerable? We tell everybody, right? So what are you doing? Do you know what Enoch knows? You know there's judgment coming? You know there's hope in Jesus? What are you doing with that information? Has it resulted in you walking closer to the Lord or thinking, I've got grace, I can drift all I want? 
Has it resulted in you having more of an urgency to pray for people in your circle that don't know Jesus, to ask God to show you ways to care for somebody in your circle that doesn't know Jesus, and then when God opens an opportunity to share about Jesus, prayer, care, share. Are you actively involved in that, or is that something you push away from the table? The closer you walk to Jesus, the closer you, the more you know God like Enoch did, it will produce in you an awareness that there is judgment coming, but that if you're in Christ, you don't have to fear that. You can actually look forward to it. Listen, if you know the exam before it comes, you're going to get it. You're going to ace the exam if you're smart. If your teacher hands out to you, here's the test I'm going to give you in two weeks. Here's all the questions. Here's an answer key. If you show up and fail the test, that's on you. Jesus tells us in advance when the judgment's coming, what it's going to be, not the day and the hour, but he tells us that it's coming, what's going to be on the test, and how we can ace the exam. I'm looking forward to having the exam because then I receive the reward of this life. Understanding of a future judgment should produce in us a closer walk with God and urgency to reach others. Final, number three. What else do we see here? Enoch had an appreciation for this present time period he lived in of God's grace. He knew judgment was coming. When did he think that first wave of judgment was coming? Tell me. It's in there. When did he think that judgment was coming? When did he think the flood, he didn't know it was a flood, but he knew judgment was coming. When did he think that event was coming? When Methuselah died. Well, now let's put this all to the test. True prophet, I I, I laugh when, I shouldn't say I laugh, I don't, but I take a word of caution when someone introduces themselves to me as a prophet. If you're a prophet, here's the one criteria, you better be right 100% of the time. Says the Bible, you can't be 50-50. You call yourself a prophet, you better be on 100% of the time. You're going to speak on God's behalf. Doesn't mean don't do it. Just means be very careful about letting it go to your head. You better be right 100% of the time. So let's see if, if he's right. If you have your phone with you, most of you have it out, you're on here. Bring it out, open it up. Get out your calculator app, my favorite app on the whole phone. We're going to do some numbers. You'll like this. The number we're looking for is 969. Don't put that in. That's the number we're trying to get to. What does 969 represent in this story? The total amount of years Methuselah was on the face of the earth. All right? So I want, to put a, I want you to put a couple numbers in there. Methuselah, on his 187th year on the earth, became the father of Lamech. So I want you to put 187 in there. Okay? Now we're going to go to Lamech's life. How many years after Methuselah's 187th year did Lamech have Noah? 182 years later, it says in verse 28 of chapter 5. So add 182 to that. Now, how many years after Noah was on the earth did the flood come? Well, we got to go to chapter 7. And you got to go down to verse 6. And it tells us Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. So add 600 to that. What do you get? 969 to the year. So I don't know whether it was the exact day, but if we're going to trust these records, 969 years after Methuselah was born, he died, and 969 years after he was born, the flood came. So was Enoch on to something? Hello? You got to see this. He was 100% spot on. So now let me ask you the question. 
Why do you suppose Methuselah is the answer to the trivia question of who lived the longest on the earth? You got to get this. Why did God let that one guy live longer than anybody else? Thank you. Grace. He was the grace period. Methuselah was like a gigantic, one of those hourglass egg timer things. You turn that upside down, and if his life is like the sand, oh, wasn't that an old soap opera? The days of our lives or something. Sorry. 80s. Sorry. (laughs) But if his life was like a, a clock ticking down, his life represented grace. After he dies, judgment comes. So God could either give him a two-hour heads up or he could give him the longest grace period he's ever given. (laughs) Do you see how gracious God was? He lived that long because God wanted to give as much grace as he possibly could before judgment came. Well, is God gracious or is he just? Is he a God of mercy or a God of judgment? You know what the answer is? Yes. You have to hold those two things in tension at all times. If he's only grace, you're going to think of yourself way too high. If he's only judgment, you're going to think of yourself way too low. You have to hold them in tension. There is one place where grace and justice were both mutually satisfied, and that's on the cross. Because on the cross, God was just. God didn't take our punishment and forget about it. Please don't ever grab onto that. Your punishment wasn't forgotten about. That would make God a terrible judge. Because he'd say, I just sweep guilty people's crimes under the rug if they just make nice to me. A sin is a sin is a sin, and every sin has the penalty of death. God never sweeps that under the rug. But God has already handed that punishment out. Well, But he didn't punish me. Of course, he punished Jesus. Jesus stepped up and took all everybody's punishments on himself. So when he goes to the cross and he's broken and he's beaten and he's bloody and he's forgotten about and he's betrayed, he's humiliated, he's stripped naked, he's beaten within an inch of his life, and he takes all that on him. He did nothing wrong, sinned against no one. All he did was sub himself into, that's what we deserve, the Bible says. So when God allows Jesus to take that punishment, that is God being just. Because he's saying, All of those sins need to be punished. But at the same time, we see grace at the cross because he's hanging there and we're not. We see it in the same story. There was judgment coming. But God was gracious. And some people hear this and they think, this is not the story of a gracious God. This is the story of an angry, vindictive, punitive, bad cop of a God. What kind of a God would punish people? Well, A, people who deserved it. But let me ask you this. Does it make me a bad dad if I tell my kids, here's what I expect. Here are the rules of the house. If you obey them, it will go well for you. If you disobey the rules and you continue to be unrepentant, there's consequences and judgment. I'm going to tell you in advance what they are. I'm going to give you a grace period, but at a time of mom and I's choosing, when the grace is no longer working, there's going to be judgment to try and get you to walk straight. Does that make a bad parent? 
to tell their kids, if you disobey, there are consequences, and here's what they're going to be, and how they, that, just, that makes you a good parent. What makes you a bad parent is you never teach your kids right from wrong. You hold these consequences in your heart, and you hope that they stumble upon them unknowingly so you can get them. God tells us straight up front, here's right, here's wrong. Here's judgment, here's the truth, here's the gospel. If you surrender your life to me and put your faith in me and put your faith in my son, you will live. If you don't, you will die. And you have time to make this choice. Don't know how much time, but you got time. That doesn't make him a bad God. That makes him gracious. Well, how do we see both of these things together? We sang it. We sang it. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Have you thought about that? Beautiful couplet in this song. Grace, knowing what grace is, will do two things. First of all, if you think you need grace, then you're aware of judgment you deserve. If you don't think you have a judgment or a consequence that you deserve, you won't care about grace. You won't notice this. It walked right up next to you. I don't need grace. What do I need grace for? I've never done anything wrong. I'll hedge my bets. I don't have anything I need to repent from. You don't understand grace. First thing grace does is it teaches your heart to fear. Because without grace, I am vulnerable and deserving of future judgment that is inescapable for me. But aren't you glad the song goes on about the second thing grace does? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. On the one hand, grace says, I am morally capable of the worst possible sins imaginable and I deserve judgment and I deserve death. That is the wage I deserve. And on the other hand, grace says, and at the same time, I'm more loved and accepted by the only, two, by the only set of eyes that matters. Grace tells me I deserve judgment, but that I'm not hopeless because there's Jesus. All wrapped up in the seventh of ten names in Genesis 5. It's one of the most raw and powerful illustrations of the gospel you'll find in the Old Testament. A man whose life reminds us that we will all die, but death is not final. He reminds us that as we understand about a future judgment, it can produce in us a closer walk with the Lord. But it also should produce in us an urgency to reach others. We know that there's a brick wall at the end of this road. And we're trying to flash our lights to the drivers going the other way saying, slow down, you're going to run into a wall that you can't see. And they're saying, I'm trying to get home. You're bothering me right now. I don't trust you. But listen, there's an urgency that should be produced in all of our hearts that we don't want to go into eternity without someone else that we know and we love about, we love and care for. Finally, we should not take God's grace for granted. We're living in a grace period right now, somewhere between Jesus' resurrection and the second coming of Jesus. I don't know exactly where we are, Jesus, Jesus told us Matthew 24 when his disciples said, Jesus, how are we going to know when you come back and set up your kingdom? Sometimes they asked him questions. He didn't even respond. This time he goes on for two chapters. Here's things you can look for. Just like he said to Enoch, hey, it's going to be when your son dies. He didn't know how many years his son would live. His son outlived Enoch. He didn't know. But he knew, hey, when Enoch dies and it happened to the year, judgment's coming. Jesus says, well, how will we know? He says, it will be like it was in the days of... Noah, interesting. The world will become increasingly wicked and wicked at an exponential pace. The gospel will be preached as a testimony to all the world, and then the end will come. Let's pray. Worship team, why don't you come?
I hope at minimum you're able to go and see Waldo a little easier now (laughs) in Genesis 5. You might need to go back through some of this, grab the study guide, pull on the threads a little bit more, read back a little bit, read ahead a little bit. It's all in there, though. I think a remarkable picture of the gospel and a great message to all of us. I want to know God like Enoch does, like Enoch did. Perhaps you're sitting in this moment online or here in the church today where you're saying, I, the, the reality of this is sitting heavy in my heart and I don't want to fear death anymore. And the pathway has just been, there's floodlights on it today. The pathway is your surrender of your life to Jesus. That's it. He's our hope. He's our substitute. He took our judgment so we have the opportunity to receive his grace. You can stop chasing the wage and just receive the gift. All that you have to do is to believe and repent. Believe you need to be saved. Believe Jesus can save you. And believe he will save you if you ask him. And you have to do what what both the Old and New Testament said people did not do when Enoch preached to them. You have to turn from living your own way. Like my buddy, who's made up his own rules to make his conscience feel better about the afterlife. You have to turn from making God into the person you want him to be and serve the God who is exactly as he says that he is. And that is a moment and a process. It's a moment of turning to him and then a process of daily surrender and cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And day by day, hour by hour, he will transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. That journey just starts in a moment, a moment of salvation. And if that's what you're ready to do this morning, all you need to do is take your own words from your heart to God's ear and you can pray to him right now. I would encourage you to do that using your words. I cannot pray for you. I mean, I can pray for you. I can't pray in your place for you to be saved and bypass you. I could sit here and pray everybody into heaven, but that's not, it has to come from your heart and your choice, but I can give you some guidance. If you need a little help to know what you can pray, you can pray a simple prayer. There's not one specific prayer, but here's one you can pray. Jesus, you and I both know that I'm a sinner and I'm sorry. I ask your forgiveness for my sins and I receive forgiveness for my sins. I put my faith in you, Jesus. I believe in my heart you did substitute yourself for me. And because you rose again from the dead, it's proof enough for me to believe that God accepted the payment you made on my behalf for my sins. And your resurrection is like a receipt that shows that the payment was processed in full. Today, I'm turning away from living my own way and I'm surrendering to you in your way. Thank you for coming into my heart and changing my life. Today, I'm beginning my cooperation and surrender to your leadership in my life as you make me like Jesus a day at a time. So I no longer fear death. Use me to point arrows to your perfect plan. In your name we pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, whether you're online or you're here in the room, congratulations, you are saved. There's no other steps you have to complete to be saved. Something Jesus does and he's doing, and you probably feel that right now in your heart. Here's what I am going to ask you to do. If you're online, we'll give you an opportunity to respond and let us know you prayed that prayer. If you're here in the sanctuary with me this morning, I'm going to count to three. And if you prayed that prayer with me today, just lift up your hand, make eye contact with me. You can put your hand right back down. We just want to cement concrete 
honor this moment, that you, this decision that you made. Who prayed with me today? One, two, three. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Anybody else? Thank you, sir. Anyone else? Take one more last moment here. Thank you. Awesome. Heavenly Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for grace. Thank you for hope. Thank you for purpose. And I pray that the reality of our future with you will shape our present in even more glorious and profound ways than before we came here today. May we be inspired to walk more closely with you, to hear you clearly and to enjoy your friendship, to build us into the people you've called us to be. And may you raise an urgency in our hearts to redouble our efforts, to simply be available to pray for, care for, and share with people you put in our circle of influence about the reason for the hope that we have that you've put inside of all of us. In your name we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.